You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. You've probably heard of my former boss, and even if you haven't heard of him, he has influenced you. I promise. Ever watched the all-day news or seen a big blockbuster summer movie? Him. Do you read the newspaper? What about one of those glossy magazines with magenta cover lines like dirty talk hot enough to make his boxers combust? Him. Odds are, if you exist in the modern world, Robert owns all or a portion of the media you consume. He hovers around number 35 on the Forbes billionaire list. I was his assistant. All important men have assistants. That's the first principle I want you to remember. Do important women also have assistants? Yes, of course. But men rule the world. Still. That's the second principle I want you to remember. Men still rule the world. Not because this is some feminist manifesto, but because it's a simple fact, essential, to how this got started. And that's what everyone wants to know. The reporters, the bloggers, what they all want to know is how we did it. How did two little girls outsmart the most powerful man in New York? That was the Upworthy headline. I'm 30 years old. Emily's 28. My five feet four inches on tippy toes brings down the average, but Emily is a solid six foot something in heels. Not so little. What Upworthy meant was powerless. A BuzzFeed story read, modern-day Robin Hoods look more like Charlie's Angels. They photoshopped us into swimsuits and put guns in our hands. Gothamist dubbed our network the Secretary Sisterhood of Thieves, exclamation point theirs. Rumors, all of it. Internet chatter. No one knows for sure what actually happened. So let me make this perfectly clear. It wasn't stealing, really. And it was almost by accident that we discovered just how much money there was out there for the taking. That's the third principle I want you to remember. There is enough money. There is so much money. Camille Perry has worked as a books editor for Cosmopolitan and Esquire magazine. She's ghost-written young adult novels and worked as a reference librarian. Her first novel is The Assistants, written while working as an assistant to the editor-in-chief of Esquire magazine. Thank you for joining me, Camille. Thank you for having me. Camille, the reading concludes with this a simple phrase, there is so much money. And I think this, this novel is a perfect example of this new genre that I have long had a bee in my bonnet about, financial fiction, where... Like in as in science fiction, science dominates, as in horror, fear dominates, as in romance, love dominates. In financial fiction, finances dominate. Uh, what made you uh, twig or think about money as being kind of the uniting factor in this novel? Well, it really came out of the fact that money was all I thought about and all I worried about. Money was what was keeping me up at night. I was mired in student loan debt. I still have student loan debt, and I was working as an assistant. 
it was a second career for me. I had a career change. So I was getting older. I was a 30-year-old assistant, and I felt really stuck in my life and stuck in my career. So money really was filling a lot of my brain energy. Like a lot of my brain energy was, was thinking about money. So I wanted to write about that. In this book, you begin it with a, a number of principles, but what we rapidly discover is a lack thereof <laughs> <laughs> on the parts of many of the characters. And uh, talk about creating the main character. Tina Fontana, I think, is fairly representative of her generation. She's she's feeling a bit stuck in her career and her life. She has debt, and she she struggles with the decision to do something illegal. She's generally an honest person. She would never have set out to commit any sort of crime, let alone embezzlement. And that's that's not a spoiler because uh, this happens in the first few pages of the novel. Tina is presented with this reimbursement check and uses her boss's expense account to pay off her student loan debt. She's not someone who would have thought ever that she would do something like this. But she begins to fantasize about what it would be like to be debt-free, and that's really what pushes her over the edge into going for it. You know, early on and and also later in the book, uh, we talk, we hear her say that, you know, she talks about her salary. And this made me think about, you know, one of the big cultural taboos for us is to talk about how much money we make or in because we are all fear we're not making very much, um, how much money we don't make. <laughs> and I, I think this is a really interesting uh, theme that ripples through this book and it ripples through our society. And it allows um, – it's a super weakness for all of us too. I mean we – it's like r- Superman running around with kryptonite strapped to his chest all the time. Yeah. It's, it, I think that there's a lot of shame around debt, all sorts of debt, um, whether it's because you, you know, took out a mortgage for a house that was more than you could afford, or if it's student loan debt, or if it's credit card debt. We all have shame if we have, if we have debt, and I don't think we like to talk about it. On top of that, we're taught that it's impolite to talk about what we make or to ask someone what they make. And I think this is particularly true, I think, for women in my experience, because I think a lot of women are underpaid in a way that men not necessarily... I mean, the wage, ga- the wage gap is real, right? The gender wage gap is real. And I think it's, it's extra important for women to kind of talk about what they're making because it, it'll teach them to know their value. Um, one of the greatest things that came out of the Sony hack, I think, was when we found out that all of these these actresses, these celebrities like Jennifer Lawrence were making less than their male co-stars. And, and I guess they sensed it, but they didn't know it was a fact until that happened. And imagine if we all just talked about what we were making and, and the kind of deals that we were being offered and accepting without countering. Um, it would change. I think that's what would change the, the weight, gender wage gap is just women being able to stand up for what they're worth by knowing what they're worth. Well, I think, too, there's an assumption that living in America, because money is so central to every aspect of our life and keeping track of it and spending it and paying our bills and having enough for lunch and dinner and food is so critical for our lives, that there's an assumption that everybody has to think, well, I'm pretty good with my money. I save it well. I, you know, I budget and all this stuff. And 
by virtue of, you know, the science of probability, there's a, a bell curve. And, you know, there are a few people over here who are really good at dealing with their money. Maybe some of them are rich. Maybe some of them are middle class. There's a big chunk of people who are in the middle. And then there's the people like me down at the end who I'm really good at spending money. Boy, I can spend money like anybody's nobody's business. But when it comes to actually making and or saving it, maybe not so good. <laughs> well, it's really hard to save money if you're barely making enough to pay your bills and to live. You know, if you're just I think, you know, rich people have financial planners and they they think about their money a lot. But I think the way they think about their money is how can I use my money to make more money like via investments or whatever. But if you're if you're a person who's struggling financially, the thoughts that you have about money are anxiety producing. So I know in my experience, the way to push that anxiety away is to try to think about money less, you know, instead of more. So it's it's more stressful to open the mail and to, to open the bills and to try to plan out, to budget your week, your month, your year. Because you, when you start looking at the numbers, I mean, I begin to sweat because I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, like, I can't. I cannot say yes to brunch this Sunday. I cannot go go to the movies. I cannot do this because I have I have to pay for my dental bill and I have my, you know, my health insurance is due this week and rent's due this week and my credit card bill is due this week and so you know, it's I think poor people the only thinking about their money is is anxiety and so they think about it less. Your your character she Tina lives in this, uh, you know, in a really, really small apartment in in New York, which is one of the most expensive cities to live in, I think, in the world in terms of, like, trying to find a space to live. Uh, why, I think that's an interesting contrast to to set a novel about, you know, somebody who's poor in the, in the city where it's the most expensive to live. Was that a deliberate decision or was that just born of, I live here too? <laughs> That was born right out of my experience. Mm. I lived in an apartment very, very similar to the one that my character Tina Fontana lives in. Um, there are rats in the walls. There were rats in my walls. She has what she calls the ceiling rain bubble. I had the ceiling rain bubble. You really did, did I really did. And it really did one day expl- open up onto my bed. Like just water, like ash-colored water, and and ceiling matter and plaster, just opened up on my bed, and it was it was terrible. And then I had to move my bed into the kitchen, and it took so long for my landlord to repair the hole in the ceiling that I actually slept in my kitchen for a solid three months. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, uh, I think that, that if you live in an urban area like New York or in Brooklyn, where where Tina lives and where I live, your money does not go very far. So much of your money goes to rent, and you either have to live in an apartment that's really small or you have to have roommates, unless you are someone who comes comes to the table with a financial safety net or a trust fund or something wonderful like that. So even if you're making, you know, the average of what the a person in your... I mean, the the average... The average salary for an assistant working in New York is remarkably low. It's around it's around thirty two thousand dollars a year. Um, you try figuring out rent in <laughs> rent in Williamsburg with that figure, and you know, get back to me. It's uh, it's very realistic. It's you know, it sounds uh, scary to me. <laughs> it's really scary. But if you're young, you do it. You pay your dues. You know, I think it's if you're in your twenties and 
you know, even if you're in your early 30s, you know, 30s, the new 20, you do it. You want to live in a, in a, you know, an urban area that's exciting, that has a lot of opportunity for you. And um, you make these sacrifices to live in a place that that's exciting. Tina, for how poor Tina is, she works in the proximity of a mind-boggling, almost unimaginably large amount of money. And I think that that kind of uh, the tension that that immediately creates for the reader and for the character is really an interesting uh, plot driver because we know that uh, nature abhors a vacuum unless it's the vacuum that's in my checking account. But other than that, (laughs) but uh, in fiction, that's not the case. Uh, Talk about this creating... uh, her working situation, and which had some echoes of yours, and and I, I'm thinking too, the main character or, or the uh, her boss is named Robert, which is, and he has a finger in every media pie. So I'm thinking that this is not unlike a, a man who runs a number of news networks in our country. We can we can let that man remain nameless, but yes, he's surely he's a. A, a level of wealth at the Rupert Murdoch or Rod, Roger Ailes level. Um, I worked, I mean, I worked for an editor-in-chief. He was not a billionaire in at this level. But even at the level that I witnessed it, if you're an assistant, you, you and you're dealing with, I mean, corporate money is just on a whole new scale. So, you know, if you're doing your boss's expenses and you begin to see... Um, this sort of wealth that you that you maybe didn't have access to before. That's I think that's what's most interesting about being a, an assistant is that you don't you don't have any money, but you're seeing so much of it. Um, it's it's it can it can be really frustrating, and I think a lot of the assistants that I know are baffled by this idea. I mean, we all we all sort of love that movie, The Devil Wears Prada. But my favorite part of The Devil Wears Prada is when at the end she. Um, she kept all of the clothes, all the swag that she had gotten and like sold it on eBay and then like paid her rent for a year, which is like pretty much encapsulates like the plot of my novel. Like if it was it was that one scene from The Devil Wears Prada, where I was like, yeah, like it's just the scale is ridiculous. You know, that this one pair of shoes in this pocketbook could be my rent for a month. It's nuts. Uh, you know, as you said, one of the things that, that drives this book and the characters all make these observations is that um, this tiny insignificant thing on this rich person's schedule their car ride their cufflink their lunch their order in uh, their plane ride is equivalent to such astronomical big chunks of our lives and i think that kind of contrast is it's really interesting it's like the kind of contrast we call them the Fordian unit of measure, measurement, FUM, when you say something's like, it's a plastic island the size of Texas. <laughs> so this is, you know, this is a, a lunch the size of a month rent. Yeah. 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 Definitely. It's hard. It. I think if you're, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even know how to respond, but it's, <laughs> it can be crazy. It can be crazy when you think about it, because if you're, if you're someone who's looking at your checking account. So, so in the book, Tina's Tina's debt, the the reimbursement check that she's presented with is for around nineteen thousand dollars, which is was, you know, that's a sizable amount of money. That like if someone handed me nineteen thousand dollars tomorrow, that would be like a life changer for me. Um, 
But for someone who's going for these kinds of on these kind of uh, luxurious trips or these CEO lunches um, or just like, you know, getting really, really nice suits. Um, that's not a lot of money. And that's part of what the that's part of the dilemma for Tina, where she's like this. They're not going to miss this amount of money. This is like, you know, two two fancy nights out for her boss. And it would literally give her a new lease on life. The scale is just outrageous. And that's where I think in the book, I love the scene and it's really uh, carefully written where she makes the moral pivot. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, because and I th- I like that she's, you know, she's worried about this. And that's one of the things we, we really like all the characters, even, uh, you know, Robert, we we come to like him. I, this is an interesting book because it's a book with there's really no villains in this book. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny that you say that. I really didn't want Robert to be a villain. I think that would have been way too easy, number one, and less less fun to read, but also less realistic because very rarely in life do we face people who are – I mean, even the billion – like, I don't know any billionaires in real life. But if I did know any real one percenters, I imagine they'd be fine people. I don't think they would be all bad. Um, I think what's funny about uh, – the the extremely wealthy is that they just have a sort of tone deafness to how regular people live their lives. And that's where some of the humor comes from. Like Tina really likes Robert and she respects him. Um, But he is sort of out of touch with how she lives her life. Um, And I think that's, that's really true to life. Well, that creates a kind of, there are some great scenes. It creates a great feeling of dissonance. And because too, um, Coming from the other direction, the things that people do, the amount of money that somebody will spend on something, you know, I know people who are wealthy and I hang out with them and they'll, you know, say, oh, I'm going to go here. And you just think, oh, my God, if I had enough money to do that, I could pay off my credit card bill for six months. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or like artwork. I just think like people who can afford like really expensive artwork. I just think, oh, my God, like, you know, I could I could buy a house with with that one painting or like that one sculpture, you know. One of the things I like about Robert is that he's a hands on guy. He's not a puppet master. He he wants to get right out there. And I think that's what keeps him from being a villain that, you know, we he's you see him as actually doing work, which is not necessarily the sense that we get in real life that these people are actually working very much. That's true. That's true. I haven't I hadn't really considered that, but I I definitely did want Robert to be the kind of guy who wants to get get his hands dirty and he's there uh he's there in the office every day and he's, you know, really really hands-on and very active. I think that gives him some integrity, you know. I, I if he were just really just some billionaire and sitting off on a beach chair somewhere. He would have been a really uninteresting character, um, and he would have been way less likable. So I wanted I wanted the audience, the audience, the reader, to to have a little bit of friction there. I wanted them to succumb to Robert's charisma a little bit, even though you know he probably dodges most most of his taxes by hiding all his money in shell you know 
shell corporations or are out in the you know the Virgin Islands or wherever. It's Panama. Oh yeah, <laughs> this, right. You you were ahead of the curve with the Panama revelations. Well, what can I say? <laughs> uh, one of the things too, I'll just quote you directly. Let's call that rule number four: very rich people don't pay for stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> yeah, you think of uh, it's not only is it true, it's. Um, part of the reason I think, you know, we all think that rich people either got rich by, you know, smarts or, you know, super smarts or, you know, by inheritance and large, often that's true. But also rich people get rich by not spending a lot of yeah. money. <laughs> yeah. It, it baffles me how people and companies, I guess, really brands want to just give rich people things, you know, um, Especially now in the age of, of Twitter and social media, where everything can be Instagrammed, I think it's. It, I mean, I have no research to base this on, but I feel like it has to have gotten worse, you know. Or someone who's, I don't know. I mean, I, they get free. I think they get free clothes, free shoes, free cars, free handbags, and you know, I think like media people are guilty of that too. I think if you work in the media, you do get so much swag, and it's funny because if you work, you know. In magazine media, anyway, uh, you know, print print matter. You're probably not being paid super well, but you're almost subsidized with the with the free stuff <laughs> that you can then Instagram and it. And like your life looks really good on the outside, and but it might all be fool's gold because you might be making forty thousand dollars a year, uh, but you've got you know the greatest new scarf or bag. <laughs> <laughs> Which works for some people, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. One of the things I think that's very clever about this book, it's kind of like I think the the format a little bit is Shaggy Dog Story. Oh wow. And and then and then and <laughs> then Yes. And then, <laughs> uh, how much of this did you know in advance and how much did you just make up as you were uh driving along through the plot, writing the book? I outline. Um, oh. I do outline. I used to ghostwrite young adult novels for Alloy Entertainment. And from that job, that writing gig, I learned how to work from an outline really mm. closely. So I do outline. And I, I did I did have, make, have countless drafts of this novel. I rewrote it a number of times. So it did change a great deal from day one to publication but I always knew the beginning and I always knew the end. And that pretty much did not change. It was mostly the middle that I rewrote countless times. But I did. There was a book a while a while back that I think was made into a movie called The Simple Plan. Um, and it was about a guy who finds a bag of money in, in a downed plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Scott. Uh, Scott Simon. Scott Simon. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I, I interviewed Correct him. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. Um, I mean, I don't know him or anything, but I... Someone had recommended that book to me, and plot-wise, I feel like it's it's a good sort of model. Um, I really did want it to just completely get like the stakes are constantly being being upped, you know, mm-hmm. and it just gets more and more out of control. You make this one decision, and it just ripple effects. Um, so that was definitely. It's funny you call it the Shaggy Dog, but uh, I think of it as a simple plan or. Yeah, I think a lot of um, crime or thrillers might have that sort of plot. You know, mm-hmm. more genre ebooks might have that sort of situation. Well, I think that uh, what's nice about this is that it has the page-turning plot tension of a crime novel, and it actually even has, to a degree, crime in it. But 
it doesn't feel like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's fun and kind of a little bit lighthearted. Uh, and I think this uh, has a, a bit to do with your prose. You said you rewrote it a lot. Was that at the prose level or at the plot level or both? A little bit of both. Um, the very first draft of this that I wrote that pretty much no one no one read but me. It was the book was a lot more serious. It was a lot more angsty, a little bit more militant. I was kind of like looking at the book Fight Club, and that was where the the rules actually originally came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the rules really started as a writing device for me to just kind of get the plot rolling. But the first draft was way more, um, in a way, serious. And there was a particular moment where, while I was while I was writing, I wrote a line that I thought was I laughed out loud at it. I thought it was pretty funny. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, wait a second. This book's going to be funny. Like, this book's going to be all about the voice. And I went back to the beginning, and I rewrote it with that in mind, where I just wanted it to be a voice-driven novel that um, that the humor, a lot of the humor just came out of a very conversational tone um, that had a little bit of darkness and sarcasm to it. And that that just changed everything for me. And all of a sudden, my new model in my mind was uh, a modern day nine to five, where I wanted it to have this farcical nature as opposed to being um, a little bit more of a manifesto. Well, I, mission accomplished. I, I thought that I we haven't talked about the voice yet, but I thought one of the things I thought it was this book was hilarious, and I I think you uh, one of the things I think you do very well is to. Uh, you use profanity well, not well, thank too you. much, but just the right amount. The salty language is sprinkled through there in many ways that, well, every time I saw it, I laughed out loud. That's great. And, uh, was that, uh, I mean, is that the way you talk? <laughs> I probably have a little bit more salt in my <laughs> in my normal conversation. Um, yeah, I don't like when books, uh, I think... Profanity can be a real crutch, mm-hmm. um, so I think it should be used sparingly. Uh, I bet you, if I looked back, my earlier drafts probably had more curses in it, and I bet a lot of them got cut out in the as I edited. Um, but that's great to hear. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you. It made you laugh out loud. That was definitely a goal. Oh yeah, no, it, w- it was. It's very funny. Uh, I, I think one of the overwhelming emotions in this book, and a little bit serious, is guilt. And I, I actually love guilt. I think guilt and embarrassment are just really powerful emotions that are underserved by by fiction, and by because I think they guilt and embarrassment I think drive us on an everyday level much more than most other emotions. Maybe even more than love. I think <laughs> depending on who you are. Yeah. I mean, me surely. <laughs> um, yeah, I think guilt could be a, a great drive. And or fear. Mm-hmm. Guilt and fear and shame. Shame. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Shame's I, a big one. Yeah, yeah. Uh your character is I, I think that um, one of the things I like about Tina is that she's kind of constantly questioning herself and going back and saying, you know, uh wondering, you know, uh once she kind of gets herself into this into this uh problem of that's that uh, begins with the uh, cashing a, uh, an account check. Um, she's constantly questioning herself, trying to, you know, this will be the last time, this is the last time, this is the last time. And I think that this is a really fun uh, kind of uh, evocation of a, a number of 
ways that we deal with things. This is the last drink. This is mm. the last candy bar. <clears throat> this is yeah. the last game I'm going to go to. This is the last video game I'm going to play. That's surely true. Tina is, I mean, in fairness to her, she is sort of being blackmailed uh, mm-hmm. in the beginning. She she want, literally would stop it if she could, um, but she feels like she can't. And then, you know, there's a certain point where she realizes that she needs to be a little bit less passive um, in what's happening and, and kind of make the decision to steer it in the direction that she has to take charge of the situation in the way to end it uh, the way she wants to end it. Well, I think that that's one of the really um, nice points of the book because as I was reading the book, I realized here's the point in the book where the character changes and you see it happen on the page. You see it happen in the prose. And I thought that was a really nice <clears> – <throat> it was fun to read because you could say – as a reader, I was able to to see it and experience it and say, oh, yes, yes, here's this great part of this book. And But it felt natural too. That's great to hear. <laughs> uh, so talk about, did you like have a little kind of graph for yourself as to where the character arc would be, you know, guilt here, and then here's a little <laughs> bit of shame here, and here's, you know, ancillary characters, and then, you know, character transformation? Yes and no. It wasn't like a chart, um, but definitely, yeah, yeah. I, I, I did have a moment where I do keep track of where my character is um, emotionally at each point. So the Tina that you meet at the beginning of the novel is, or like, let's say in the first third, is different than the Tina that you're going to meet in the middle chapters and different than the Tina that that is in the resolution of the novel at the end. So because it's a narrated book in the past tense, um, the voice needs to be it's it's a balancing act because it's partly she's telling the story from her where she is now presently from a place of greater strength however you want the voice to kind of relay where the character is presently in the moment of the narrative so i did pay a lot of attention to that and it is so amazing that you picked that up while you were reading um you're a really good reader because I, <laughs> I think that I, I think in a best case scenario, uh, a reader maybe intuitively picks up on that, but can't really put a finger on it. Um, but oh. but you're a pro, so. <laughs> no, it's just a, I thought it was really well written, and uh, there's a kind of transparency to the prose. This is, on one hand, I like how lighthearted this is. I never feel you know we're pretty. In fact, I can say. With certainty, nobody is ever going to be decapitated, killed, assaulted, beat up, or any other horrible thing is going to happen, although we are in a constant state of tension as to what's going mm-hmm. to happen if there's going to be a comeuppance. Yeah. And I think that, that the idea of this, you know, the comeuppance, when, when is the comeuppance going to happen and how serious will it be is a nice kind of state to put us in. Yeah, well, you know, I feel like for most of us, we don't i mean fortunately for us in this in this country we don't generally think about getting decapitated or having being murdered <laughs> or a lot of us will never account a murder in our lives mm-hmm. and so books that hinge on those things they're fun in, in a way to read for me personally as as a you know actually i'm a chicken i don't even really like reading books about murder because they give me nightmares i'll tell you the truth but i feel like i like reading books where i feel like this could really happen to me mm-hmm. and that was really my goal with the assistance i wanted 
I wanted readers of this book to really sympathize with and empathize with Tina because this could easily happen to you. Like, if you are presented with this moral question, you may very well have done the same thing she did, and it could very well spin out of control. And this is really what it, how it would go down, you know? Um, I feel like the thing that drives Tina the most almost is her fear of letting Robert down. Like, even more for her than... I think she's less afraid of going to jail than she is of Robert just finding out that she betrayed him because his trust me- means so much to her. And, and it's helped her, too. It's given her access to things that she could not otherwise possibly have. Yeah, for I mean, sure. Being uh, As you say, I think there's a great line in there where you say that the assistants are de- defined by those by their bosses. Yeah. And I thought that, that, it's true. that was a real... Uh, Really? So you you were an assistant. <laughs> I was an assistant. I mean, I was the assistant of David Granger, and I would have conversations with other assistants on the phone when we were trying to make a dinner reservation. And I and I would say, like, you know, well, my David's free at two, and and you know, her my this one particular instance I'm thinking of, her boss was also named David, and she was saying, well, my David's free at three, and so we were going back and forth, and you just you take ownership of this person <laughs> in this really strange and intimate way. Um, you're you're like an extension of this, you know, castle of a person who you know. I mean, in my experience, David Granger was like a hero to his entire staff, and and we all really really. Um, looked up to him and he was just a, a model, a model human being. And I don't think that's the case for everyone. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of bosses out there are terrible. Um, but if the case is that you, you know, if I had ever done anything to disappoint David, I would have been devastated. Um, you know, if, if I had betrayed his trust or done something on the level of what Tina's done, I think I would have been more afraid of, of being, of letting David down. Mm-hmm. Well, you convey that well in the book. I mean, she's she frets a lot in in the book about that. Uh, you you also talk a little bit about her new best frenemy. I guess I, Emily Johnson. Emily Johnson, yeah. Emily Johnson is a character that I think, in a lot of ways, is a a bait and switch. Um, <laughs> she presents one way, and Tina sees her as this. Barbie doll. She's blonde hair, blue eyed, gorgeous, very, um, you know, she's got designer everything. She she talks with this sort of waspy accent. Um, but very quickly, we find out that Emily Johnson is all shine on the outside. And it, it's all it's all a cover. It's all a cover. She grew up working class. Her parents worked for the post office. She um, she grew up in the worst slums of Connecticut, not uh Greenwich, where Tina thinks that she's from. She didn't actually go to Harvard. Like everyone says, she went to Harvard. She went to Hartford. Um, And she has kind of fostered this misunderstanding of who she is. She's worked very hard to have this uh, for this facade. So you would never expect someone like the character of Tina to become genuinely friends with the character of Emily, who's the first person to blackmail her. But they end up having this, uh, they end up becoming great friends. And I think that's part of what's really, really um, fun about the book, too, is it really is. a, a Tina's really a loner, um, and she doesn't connect with people that well. She'd much rather sit in a room and watch Netflix than go out and be with others. And Emily pretty much just moves in on her and f- almost like forces her to be friends with her at first. But um, 
it's also a novel about fe- about female friendship, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that's a that's a, that was an important area of growth for Tina as well. Well, I like the way that that the the map of that um, of friendship as opposed to a romance, which we do get a, a bit of a romance, a little bit, uh, yeah. But I and I like that your level of both of those is you give us enough but not too much. We don't have too much friendship. We don't have too much romance. And I think that, and again, we, and we have some crime, but we don't have too much crime. I think uh, you, you mastered a, a novel of moderation that's still really exciting and fun to read. <laughs> all, the, all the plates spinning. You yeah. Know, the, yeah, the plates are all spinning. Well, that's, that's great. I really did want the, uh, I, I wanted the, the guilt and the, and the um, anxiety surrounding the crime to be first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I wanted that to be number one. It couldn't really be the only thing because there are other things going on in, in her life, and I wanted Tina to be a, a well-rounded character. So, um, But yeah, she, there's a little bit of love. There's a little bit of romance in there. But I, I didn't want that to be the end all mm-hmm. either. I was glad that that was, that was a sub subplot. I mean, it wasn't the, the driver for the whole thing. Yeah. <clears throat> we have some other characters too. I, li- I like Wendy Chan. <laughs> I love Wendy. Ch- I, I have a special place in my heart for Wendy. Um, Wendy is based is like a composite of like every every tech person that I had to deal with while I was working for the Hearst Corporation. You know, when you when you call, you call the tech people and you say, my, you know, my mouse has stopped working on my computer. And they say, well, we'll just like spit on it, just spit on the ball or, or you know, it's always unplug it and plug it back in. You know, I was that guy. You were that guy. I oh, was, right. <laughs> of course. Yeah, you're a tech guy. So yeah, no, I can you explain t- to me why <laughs> unplugging it and plugging it back in is always the first thing you try, no matter what the problem is? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I would love for, to know this finally. The mystery, have this mystery solved. Well, whatever monsters and gremlins have come to reside within the electrical structure of its tiny brain are, <clears throat> they lose all their powers. And are thus removed by banishment of this of the spell. You undo the power of the spell and then bring it back up, and it's all clean again. Wow! I wish I had a plug <laughs> so I could unplug myself and replug myself back in. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm always looking for my own reset button, but I can't find it. <laughs> I, in speaking of tech, I thought you did a really good job of integrating modern technology and social media and some of that aspect into this book without overdoing it i i th- it seems to me that there's a real temptation to for to go down the facebook twitter social media rabbit hole and never come out again yeah well there are a few reasons for that one i'm not really a, a tech savvy person at mm-hmm. all so and I really wanted to keep it at a level that was really, really accessible. And also, Tina isn't either. Um, well, that's why Tina isn't, because I wasn't, and I would have, have had to work extra hard to make her tech savvy. Um, but the, the other reason is, this book took really long to write, and books take really long to come out. And technology and social media, too, move so quickly that you just never know what's going to be obsolete. Um, by the mm. time publication is going to come out. So I really did want to leave some of that stuff fairly vague in case, like, you know, I mean, Twitter today 
is Snapchat tomorrow is I don't even know, you know, like it's it, you just don't know. So right. I wanted to play it safe. No, that's a that's a good point. I, I'm just waiting for Facebook to become the next MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> I remember MySpace. Thank God MySpace is gone because it was just uh, too chaotic for me. I never really I was many people told me, Rick, you've got to be on MySpace. And I said, I can well, if MySpace were still around, I could never run for president. Let's just say that we were stupid on what we about what we put on MySpace back then. Um, I, I, you, I like how um, Tina is kind of anti-romantic in a in a mm. sense. I I think that that's a that's a nice um, play for her because it it makes her somewhat makes her more sympathetic to us. I think. Mm. Yeah, um, some might say Tina's guarded. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's surely guarded. I thought that would be a nice if, if that was like to, that went along with her voice. Like I wanted Tina to be tough. Um, I didn't want her to be sappy. I knew that this book was sort of going to be a delicate balance between, um, you know, commercial. You know, I knew that in some sense people would embrace it as chiclet, and I'm totally okay with that. Um, but I, I didn't want her to be a chiclet cliche protagonist by any means. I really wanted her to be, um, yeah, a little, just a little bit. I wanted her to be a little, have a little darkness to her. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I think that's, uh, uh, I didn't really, you know, I didn't, I guess I suppose it's chiclet. It didn't strike me as that as I read it. Well, I think, I mean, ch- you know, look, <laughs> no, I, the, the cover's coral. Oh. And so it's and it's got a girl on it. So like if you're if you're a female author and your book is this color and it has a girl with glasses on it, it's all of a sudden chiclet. That's fine. It's a marketing shortcut. I get mm-hmm. it. I've worked in book media. Like whatever it takes to get your book into the hands of people who will like it, mm-hmm. that's fine. If people want to call it chiclet, that's great. The crime. I've had a lot of um, crime readers and uh, mystery readers um, come to me and say, "Oh, I love this. This is such a different kind of crime." crime book and you know i didn't think of it as a as a crime book but it surely does have a crime at the heart of it and so great yeah i call it a crime like you know these these marketing uh labels are they're for convenience so i'm i'm fine with anything you know call it call it whatever you want just buy it <laughs> <laughs> right no it's a it's a nice it's a I would approach it myself as a piece of crime fiction. And I kind of like crime fiction without the crime exactly. Yeah. I mean, there is one there, but it doesn't have any of the feel of the usual crime fiction novel, which I think is to its benefit. There's a great scene in here where um, the characters have to go down to the sexual harassment prevention seminar, (laughs) which you – point out is two hours every year when all mid to lower level female staff have to gather in the building's auditorium to be reminded of how disenfranchised they were. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting observation, (laughs) which I never thought about it before, but that's absolutely the case. Kind of. It kind of is. I, you know, I was having a little bit of fun there. I don't, I don't really think it's, it's quite so bad in real life. I wanted to to blow that scene up a little bit um, for for humor. Um, but, you know, have you ever taken... I, so we when I worked for Hearst, we used to do ours online. And it's it's kind of... 
it could be kind of comical when you're clicking through those questions, the sexual harassment Q&As, like, is this appropriate? Is What would you do in this case? I don't know. It just, it always made me feel like I never felt like more female in my life than when I like took that sexual harassment thing on, on <laughs> online. <laughs> also, as somebody whose glasses are currently lying on the desk in front of me, I was glad to see that. Uh, the tiny, the tiny mention of the comforting blur that the world becomes when you remove your glasses. And I think that, but also that speaks to, I mean, people who wear glasses have an ability to like change their perception by removing their glasses. And, and I think change the way we deal with the world, which is really nice. I will have you know that I am not wearing glasses or contacts right now, and I actually did not bring glasses or contacts in my suitcase for my book tour. I just, I'm living on the blur right now, and it's great. <laughs> it makes me feel a little bit safer. I should make the note that my eyesight's not very bad, and oh. I, I can see close up. I just can't see far away. Okay. So it's useful, and it's not terrible. It, so I, I'm not going to be walking into pillars or anything, but it's useful if you're standing doing public speaking in front of a group. Um, because you can't really see their faces, mm. you know, which oh, is yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. no. It's <laughs> at one point, Tina's like looking at different people and trying to figure out what they're thinking. Of. For for example, Emily. I mean, she's got she has one model for Emily until she gets to know Emily, and then that, that model just gets completely decimated. Yeah, I think appearances can be deceiving in mm. real life, and some of that is some of us work very hard to keep up appearances. <laughs> um, and I think particularly if you're someone from a working class background or even a middle class background and you are faking it till you make it, which is what a lot of us do, um, you don't want to show your cards. Mm -hmm. You know, you work really hard and you're constantly um, you're constantly trying to figure out if you're pulling it off. So you, as you're always living, you're, you're, you know, you have two things going on in your mind. You're, you're doing the thing you're doing and then you're you're thinking about how it's being perceived. Well, you take aim at that fake it till you make it uh, idea in this book and uh, let out a shotgun at it. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. But, you know, I mean, I'm faking it till I make it right now. So who am I kidding? No. <laughs> uh, I would say you've made it. Gosh. You are on. You are on uh... I guess I'm here. I'm here on public radio. So I have. I could stop faking it now. Yeah. yeah. I, you were on uh, Weekend Edition Sunday with Rachel yes, Martin. Yes, that's true. I was. A couple of days ago. So doesn't get much better than that. All right. Well, girls, fake, <laughs> keep faking it because one day it's going to happen for you. I think, you know, this um, student loan debt at the beginning, there's a great pa paragraph in here where you say, all the women who came to us had their own story, but it was the same story and not so different from Emily's or mine. Student loan debt coupled the ship out with pay had driven them all to desperation. Okay, desperation might be an overstatement. We were assistants, not coal miners, not janitors or a nuclear power plant. But I'm talking about serious frustration here. And I think that that kind of serious frustration, that's what's driving this entire nation at this moment. And that's why I think this is a, a book that a lot of, is, could connect with a lot of people. Yeah, it's funny because this this book took a long time to write and a long time to to sell and a long time to come out. And it's so funny that I think it's actually coming out at the most perfect time. I mean, just look at what is happening with this president, presidential election right now. And it's, I mean, inequality 
income inequality is just, it's on everybody's minds. I think it's so clear to see that people are fed up and people are energized. And young people also, a student loan has been a huge, it's been a huge part of Hillary Clinton's campaign. It's been a huge part of Bernie Sanders' campaign. Elizabeth Warren is talking endlessly about um, student loan reform. I just think it's, I think it's reaching a breaking point. And I, I, I really do hope that we're on the brink of seeing so much change in terms of that. I know when I spoke with Cory Doctorow maybe a couple of years ago, he was talking that student, he, his take was that student loan debt was going to become the same kind of uh, collapsing uh, house of cards that the, uh, that, uh, the mortgage uh, a scandal uh, became. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. It's trillions of dollars. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a huge amount of money. It's got, I mean, Obama did, pa- I mean, we've had, we have a little bit of student loan forgiveness now. There there are things, there are, there, there are reasons for hope. There are reasons to have hope that, that it won't collapse in such a catastrophic way. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, at one point your character says, perhaps I did read Israel, which is often just code people used to describe a woman who was willing to eat a hamburger in public, but I would never really pass for a break. What was going on in my mind when I wrote that line, um, partic- yeah, it's funny, we were just speaking of the presidential election, but I think there's this weird obsession with having our public people, especially politicians, read as real in the sense of like, who do you want to have a beer with? Like people are so obsessed with the idea of like needing to vote for the president, they would be, want to sit down to have a beer with. I do not need my president to be someone I'm going to sit down and have a beer with. I don't, you know, I want them to be the most qualified to run the country. I don't have to like them. I just have to think that they can do a good job. Um, I agree. I know I don't want to have a beer with my president. I want no. him to. I want him to not like. You know, start insane wars or drive the country to the edge of the financial brink. Absolutely, and yet, as we're seeing, you know, when these presidents, when these hope, presidential hopefuls go out and campaign, what are they doing? They're, you know, I mean, if you've ever seen the show Veep, they like do a great job with me- making fun of this. You know, they're out there and they, you know, they're eating ice cream to show that they eat ice cream. They eat a hot dog to show they eat a hot dog. They're baking, you know, they're making pancakes. They're, you know, they have them doing all these like folksy things to, to prove they're just one of us. They're not just one of us. They're, they shouldn't be just one of us. They're going to run the country. I don't care if they can make pancakes. I don't care if they eat a vegan diet or if they eat hot dogs. I just want them to be able to do their job. So that's what was going through my, my mind and when I was writing that line. Um, and also... That um, I think it's I wanted to have a female character who ate, like you know, who ate hamburgers, who ate normal food, who ate normal food, not even like beyond like. Tina grew up sort of, um, I don't want to say poor because she wasn't really poor, but definitely working class, and you know, what it's what I like to call poor people food. Like mm. I think if you grew up. You know, I grew up eating poor people food. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's right. Hey, I'm still eating it. <laughs> I'm still eating it. I'm still eating it. And I, I, you know, I know about nutrition now and I eat, a, I like to eat a, a well-balanced diet, but I love, I love eating, you know, greasy takeout food. And I think that um, there are a lot of women who don't want to be seen eating that food in public. And I think they do it in secret. So I just wanted to have a character who was like shoving hamburgers in her mouth and <laughs> unapologetic about it. The new novel by Camille Perry is The Assistance. Thank you for speaking with me, Camille. Thank you so much. This was really a lot of fun.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.